The International Association for Near-Death Studies presents NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. Will humanity destroy itself in a nuclear war? What does prophecy and history have to say about it? Welcome to NDE Radio, brought to you by the International Association for Near-Death Studies. I'm your host, Lee Whitting. I have to admit having a long-time fascination with the topic of end times. I even devoted a master's thesis to the subject back in the 1990s. I had set all that aside, though, until recently, when it became clear that uh, Vladimir Putin was making a dramatic move into Syria with uh, plans to confront U.S. and ally forces in defense of Syrian President Assad's dictatorial government. It seems one of the key ingredients in biblical end times prophecy is the idea that a Russian leader will have an evil thought, and that thought leads Russia into fighting a war in the Middle East, which seems to be what's going on right now. Back in the 1960s, as the New Age movement was taking off, there was a rebirth of interest in prophecy. The ancient cryptic prophecies of Nostradamus, for instance, uh, 20th century sleeping visions of Edgar Cayce, and even the countdown of popes predicted by St. Malachi in the Middle Ages, saying, for instance, that today's pope, Pope Francis, would be the last one in line. All those predictions were discussed by the New Agers, while the end times churches talked of Hal Lindsey's book, The Late Great Planet Earth, and how the prophecies of the books of Daniel and Revelation portrayed an angry God fed up with the dissipation of those very New Age types with their drugs and free love. God was going to punish the reprobates, while fundamental Christians would be spirited away in a rapture guaranteed to separate the good guys from the bad guys. Some religious fundamentalists still think the end will come when God has had enough and decides to destroy the world with an asteroid and earthquakes, lightning, and the like. I'm convinced that if these Bible prophecies are fulfilled, it will be because humanity alone, you and me, without any urging from God, will do it to ourselves. The fact that Bible-age prophets would say God inflicts it is because they had no idea, in their wildest imaginings, that we would have had weapons of mass destruction as awesome as ballistic missiles with multiple hydrogen bombs attached. If they had had visions of skin melting off whole populations and the elements themselves melting, they could only have thought God was doing it, not us. People themselves, they thought, would never have that kind of destructive power. They had no idea that within the period of one generation, we could go from warfare on horseback to nuclear holocaust. I myself was born a few days before the first above-ground tests of the atomic bomb, and I may yet live to see a nuclear third world war. The decision, I believe, is up to us. For those of you who think the Armageddon story is all nonsense, answer me this. Really, do you think the current political leadership in the world is wise enough and restrained enough to avoid nuclear war? In this show, I'll tell you uh, what the Bible and historical documents from India have to say about the possibilities of a nuclear ho- holocaust. The texts blame God, of course, but think of the leadership in Russia and China, North Korea and South Korea, Pakistan, Israel and India, Europe, and, of course, the United States. 
Well, we'll begin this passage from the Bible's book of Isaiah, chapter 24. See, the Lord is going to lay waste the earth and devastate it. He will ruin its face and scatter its inhabitants. It will be the same for priest as for people, for the master as for the servant, for the mistress as for her servant, for seller as for buyer, for borrower as for lender, for debtor as for creditor. The earth will be completely laid waste and totally plundered. The Lord has spoken this word. The earth dries up and withers. The world languishes and withers. The heavens languish with the earth. The earth is defiled by its people. They have disobeyed the laws, violated the statutes, and broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse consumes the earth. Its people must bear their guilt. Therefore, earth's inhabitants are burned up, and very few are left. The new wine dries up, and the vine withers. All the merrymakers groan. The joyful timbrels are stilled. The noise of the revelers has stopped. The joyful harp is silent. No longer do they drink wine with a song. The beer is bitter to the drinkers. The ruined city lies desolate. The entrance to every house is barred. In the streets they cry out for wine. All joy turns to gloom. All joyful sounds are banished from the earth. The city is left in ruins. Its gates are, is battered to, its gate is battered to pieces. So will it be on the earth and among the nations as when an olive tree is beaten or as when gleanings are left after the grape harvest. They raise their voices. They shout for joy. From the west they acclaim the Lord's majesty. Therefore, in the east, give glory to the Lord, exalt the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, in the islands of the sea. From the ends of the earth we hear singing, glory to the righteous one. But I said, I waste away, I waste away, woe to me, the treacherous betray, with treachery the treacherous betray. Terror and pit and snare await you, people of the earth. Whoever flees at the sound of terror will fall into a pit. Whoever climbs out of the pit will be caught in a snare. The floodgates of the heavens are opened. The foundations of the earth shake. The earth is broken up. The earth is split asunder. The earth is violently shaken. The earth reels like a drunkard. It sways like a hut in the wind. So heavy upon it is the guilt of its rebellion that it falls never to rise again. In that day, the Lord will punish the powers in the heavens above and the kings on the earth below. They will be handed together, the herded together, like prisoners bound in a dungeon. They will be shut up in prison, and be punished after many days. The moon will be dismayed, the sun ashamed. For the Lord Almighty will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before its elders with great glory. And that's from Isaiah 24, that's verses 1 through 23. It's poetry of a very sad nature. Then there's this prophecy from the prophet Ezekiel concerning peoples of the north. Gog, Magog, Meshach, Tubal, etc. It's very interesting these names are used because these names are the ancient tribes that inhabited the area, what we now call Russia or Russian suburbs, if you will, 
It's uh, peoples from the far north. So when you hear Gog in this text, or any of those names, uh, think Russia. And it's all about Russia invading Israel. So this begins with verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, set your face against Gog, Russia, of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshech, which uh, some people think is a derivation of the of the city of Moscow, and Tubal. And then it says, Persia, Cush, and Put will be with them. Now that, of course, is Iran, and there is an alliance right now between Russia and Iran, which is uh, more than coincidence, I think. Persia, Cush, and Put will be with them, all with shields and helmets. Also Gomer with all its troops and Beth Togarma from the far north with all its troops, the many nations with you. Get ready. Be prepared, you and all the hordes gathered about you, and take command of them. After many days you will be called to arms. In future years you will invade a land that has recovered from war whose people were gathered from many nations to the mountains of Israel. And this, of course, sounds like the restoration of Israel when the Jews came from all over the world to repopulate it. Whose people were gathered from many nations to the mountains of Israel, which had long been desolate. They had been brought out from the nations, and now all of them live in safety. You and all your troops and the many nations with you will go up, advancing like a storm, you will be like a cloud covering the land. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. On that day, thoughts will come into your mind. This is the evil thought that enters the leader's mind. And you will devise an evil scheme. You will say, I will invade a land of unwalled villages. I will attack a peaceful and unsuspecting people, all of them living without walls and without gates and bars. I will plunder and loot and turn my hand against the resettled ruins and the people gathered from the nations, rich in livestock and goods, living at the center of the land. Sheba and Dendan, Deddan and the merchants of Tarshish and all her villages will say to you, Have you come to plunder? Have you gathered your hordes to loot, to carry off silver and gold, to take away livestock and goods and to seize much plunder? Therefore, son of man, Prophesy and say to Gog, to Russia, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. In that day, when my people Israel are living in safety, will you not take notice of it? You will come from your place in the far north. You will, and many nations with you, and these of course are all of the various small tribes, the small countries that existed then, which have been combined into uh, the larger nation of Russia all of them riding on horses, a great horde, a mighty army. And of course, all they could envision when they were having their dreams of war were horseback. Um, you will advance against my people, Israel, like a cloud that covers the land. In days to come, Gog, I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me when I am proved holy through, uh, the, through you before their eyes. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. It goes on. This is where we're now to uh, verse 17. You are the one I spoke of in former days by my servants, the prophets of Israel. At that time, they prophesied for years that I would bring you against them. This is what will happen in that day when Gog attacks the land of Israel. 
My hot anger will be aroused, declares the Sovereign Lord. In my zeal and my fiery wrath, I declare that at that time there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. And uh, when you hear the word earthquake in this prophecy and others, think of the repercussions of uh, an all-out nuclear holocaust. The fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the beasts of the field, every creature that moves along the ground, and all the people of the face of the earth will tremble in my presence. The mountains will be overturned, the cliffs will crumble, and every wall will fall to the ground. I will summon a sword against Gog on my mountains, declares the Sovereign Lord. Every man's sword will be against his brother. I will execute judgment on him with plague and bloodshed. I will pour down torrents of rain, hailstones and burning sulfur on him and on his troops and on the many nations with him. That's Ezekiel 38, 1 through 22. And notice um, the uh, recurring earth shaking and fire that comes out of these descriptions, because that's if you were envisioning uh, nuclear war, that's what you would that's what you would be seeing. Uh, here's one from the prophet Zechariah. Bear in mind that these are all Old Testament readings, where this is uh, some of this hundreds of years before Jesus. This is the plague which the Lord will strike all the nations that fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Does that sound like radiation? Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. On that day, people will be stricken by the Lord with great panic. They will seize each other by the hand and attack one another. Interesting image. Seize each other by the hand and attack one another. Judah, too, will fight. At Jerusalem, the wealth of all the surrounding nations will be collected, great quantities of gold and silver and clothing. A similar plague will strike the horses and mules, camels and donkeys, and the, all the animals in those camps. Of course, radiation kills the animals just as readily as it does the people. And the wealth, you know, which um, you, uh, I think the prophets were envisioning these countries being attacked so that this wealth could be seized. But the kind of attack that we envision when we talk about nuclear war is the kind of wealth that's accumulated by the uh, industries that produce the war materials. So those are some of the Old Testament references to a Russian invasion of the Middle East, culminating in what sounds like a worldwide nuclear conflagration. Now, let's take a look at some of the New Testament readings on the matter. And this is, uh, I've abridged some of this just for a matter of time and also because um, Jesus talks a lot about false prophets that may or may not uh, pertain. But in any way, this is, um, uh, I believe this is Matthew 24. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came to him to call his attention to its buildings. Uh, this temple at that point was fairly new. This is um, Herod's temple, and it was quite grand. I've seen models of it, and they have um, some um, re- reproduction models in Jerusalem itself that you can visit. Do you see the, all these things, he asked? And this is in response to their saying, look at this, isn't this great? Truly, I tell you, not one stone here 
will be left on another, everyone will be thrown down. Reminds you in some ways of the Twin Towers, actually. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will all this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered, and here we skip to uh, verse 10. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people because of the increase of wickedness. The love of most will grow cold. And uh, I think we can see some of that happening in society right now. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. And then he goes on uh, in verse 15. So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, um, let the reader understand. And, and this, by the way, would be um, on uh, the site of the temple, the temple that's been destroyed, but it's, it is still the site. And um, uh, this is a, plays a key role, of course, in all of the uh, prophecies about Israel. It's the Temple of the Mount, the location where the, the uh, first temple of Solomon was built. Um, let the reader understand then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down to take anything out of the house. In other words, this is going to come really fast, and you've got to get out of town. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the south, for then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world, until now, and never to be equaled again. And in 28, wherever there is a car- carcass, there the vultures will gather. And then Jesus quotes from Isaiah, Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Now, uh, after a nuclear war, no doubt, there'd be so much dirt and dust in the air, probably radioactive, that none of the light from the sun or the moon would be uh, clearly visible at that point. Stars falling from the sky could very well be uh, missiles raining down, other weaponry. And uh, the heavenly bodies will be shaken uh, I think just the vibrations of the earth from uh, from a bombing like that would be enough to make everything seem to be um, unstable. And then Jesus gives us a clue as to when this might happen. He makes reference to Israel, which of course was Israel in those days. Um, Israel is symbolized by the fig tree. And um, this reference interpreters take to mean the reestablishment of Israel and the generation dating from 1948. 
Uh, this is verse 32. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree, Jesus says. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, in other, in other words, when Israel is once again flourishing, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know, you know that it is near right at the door. That is the end. Truly, I tell you, this generation, this generation of the rebirth of Israel will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. And then, of course, we have to look at the book of Revelation. This is John of Patmos, his visions. The story goes that he lived in a cave when he was writing this. You can imagine him in a dark place, uh, either dreaming or envisioning uh, a final destruction. The sixth angel sounded his trumpet, and I heard a voice coming from the four horns of the golden altar that is before God. It said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who were bound at the great river Euphrates, and the four angels who had been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. A third of mankind. The number of the mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And by the way, that's uh, 200 million is the number of the uh, size of the Chinese army today. The horses and riders I saw in my vision looked like this. Now, as you hear this, envision heavy weaponry uh, and try to see it in the eyes of a first century person living in a cave. Their breastplates were fiery red, dark blue, and yellow as sulfur. The heads of the horses resembled the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and sulfur. A third of mankind was killed by the three plagues of fire, smoke, and sulfur that came out of their mouths. The power of the horses was in their mouths and in their tails, where the guns would be mounted. For their tails were like snakes, having heads with which they inflict injury. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the works of their hands. They did not stop worshipping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze, stone and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. That's Revelation 9. Uh, 13 through 21, and then from Revelation 16, then they gathered the kings together in the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It is done. Then they came, there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since mankind has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the Great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away, and the mountains could not be found. From the sky, huge hailstones, each weighing about a 100 pounds, sounds like weaponry to me, fell on people and they cursed God on account of the plague of hail because the plague was so terrible. Who knows what seismic shocks would result from an all-out nuclear war. I mentioned at the beginning of the show that I was born around the time of the first open-air nuclear test. But consider this. At the time, my grandparents were still having blocks of ice delivered by horse and wagon to their kitchen door for their ice box. And this was not in some third-world country. This was in New Jersey. 
And in less than 50 years, we had moved from a total horse and buggy society to one that could split the atom. So would it surprise you to learn that such a technological revolution may have happened at least once before in India? The following description of a nuclear war may go back some 24,000 years. It lived in Indian oral tradition until it was recorded in the Ramayana and the Mahabharata. These two great ancient epics of India, the Ramayana and Mahabharata, are centered on conflicts and refer to military formations, theories of warfare, and esoteric weaponry. And uh, the Mahabharata is an amazing work. It's um, it, It's been compared to the importance of um, that of the Bible, the works of Shakespeare, the works of Homer, Greek drama, the Koran. Oh, and note, by the way, the similarity of the name of the supreme god of the time, Krishna, with the name of Christ. Lord Krishna in the Mahabharata was known as the Almighty. The word Krish, which means place, and Na means high or highest in the celestial world. Lord Krishna was the ultimate ruler and the highest order among the gods known back then. So here is a text, ancient Indian text, made dating back 24,000 years. It's about a nuclear war. Gurkha, flying a swift and powerful, fast aircraft, hurled a single rocket charged with the power of the universe. Sounds like a nuclear device, doesn't it? An incandescent column of smoke and flame as bright as 10,000 suns rose with all its splendor. It was an unknown weapon, an iron thunderbolt, a gigantic messenger of death, which reduced to ashes the entire race of the Vrishnis and the Andakas. The corpses were so burned as to be unrecognizable. Hair and nails fell out. Again, that sounds like radiation. Pottery broke without apparent cause. That also sounds like radiation. And the birds turned white. After a few hours, all foodstuffs were infected. To escape from this fire... The soldiers threw themselves in streams to wash themselves and their equipment. And there are further accounts of the animals rushing into the rivers trying to uh, to wash off this uh, deadly radiation and the, and the burns. When I first studied these texts um, in the Eastern Studies Program at Columbia University in the 1960s, it reminded me of the descriptions of radiation poisoning from John Hershey's little book, Hiroshima, which is a powerful uh, description of uh, what happened when we bombed Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Here's another quote. It was a weapon so powerful that it could destroy the earth in an instant. A great soaring sound and smoke and flames and on, its, and on it sits death. That's from the Ramayana. Also, dense arrows of flame like a great shower issued forth upon creation, encompassing the enemy. A thick gloom swiftly settled upon the Pandava hosts. All points of the compass were lost in darkness. Fierce wind began to blow upward, showering dust and gravel. Birds croaked madly. The very elements seemed disturbed. The earth shook, scorched by the terrible, violent heat of this weapon. Elephants burst into flame and ran to and fro in a frenzy. Over a vast area, other animals crumbled to the ground and died. From all points of the compass, the arrows of flame rained continuously and fiercely. That's from the Mahabharata. 
It's claimed there are sites of ancient Indian cities where the radiation counts are much higher than normal background radiation could account for. So isn't it possible that India had a moment of high technology back in what we now call prehistoric times, a time we have nearly forgotten? And that technology led to the downfall of an advanced civilization. And isn't it possible that we could do the same things to ourselves? Plato's legend of Atlantis certainly offers the same picture of an, an early advanced civilization that fell to ruin through natural disaster or perhaps by their own hand. And when you think of how reliant we are on the fragile structures of the Internet, its loss along with the power grid, high-tech farming, uh, water supplies and the uh, power supplies that we rely on so tremendously, the failure of those in a nuclear blast would certainly bring our civilization as we know it to an end in a hurry. All the records, all the knowledge that we've accumulated, if it's in the cloud, it'll be gone. Now next week's show is devoted to the alternatives to nuclear war. Remember, we ourselves are responsible for our futures and the future of the Earth. And I believe there's still time to jump over these prophecies of nuclear war to equally powerful prophecies of love and peace. If you would like to listen to this show again or any other of our previous programs, please visit our website at nderadio.org. And for more information about IONS, please check that website at iands.org. This is Lee Whitting saying thanks for listening. <laughs>